You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at my home on unceded Wurundjeri lands for 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. My name is AC. Today I'm sharing audio from Beyond Trinity, a special panel discussion that the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, hosted to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the first nuclear explosion, codenamed Trinity. First you'll hear from Tina Cordova, co-founder of the Tulsa Rosa Basin Downwinders Consortium in New Mexico, USA, and later Karina Lester, Yankunjara Anangu, second-generation survivor of nuclear testing in Australia. First, I want to st- extend my gratitude to ICANN Australia for organizing this, for inviting me to participate. It's, it's such um, a wonderful opportunity to be able to connect with like-minded people from all across the world and to educate people from all across the world about what it's been like to be a downwinder of the first nuclear uh, we don't call it a test any longer. We, talk, we call it a disaster. And so what I'd like to do um, first is talk a little bit about the test and what made it so devastating for human health. And then um, I will talk a little bit about the work of the TBDC. So when the bomb was detonated on the morning of July 16th in the desert of New Mexico, um, there were some things that were unique about this bomb never to be repeated. The bomb was placed on a platform 100 feet off the ground. And because of that, the blast blast power of the bomb came down, intercepted the earth, took up an enormous amount of dirt, sand, animal, and plant life, incinerated it because it produced more heat and more light than the sun, and then took it up in a fireball that exceeded the atmosphere and penetrated the stratosphere. The bomb was also incredibly inefficient. It was packed with 13 pounds of weapons-grade plutonium and only three pounds of the plutonium fission. The remaining 10 pounds of plutonium that has a half-life of 24,000 years went up in that fireball and then fell to the earth afterwards for days as a radioactive ash. The people in New Mexico in 1945, in those rural areas that surrounded the Trinity test site, didn't have running water. So they relied on cisterns and holding ponds and rivers and lakes and ditch systems to access water for every purpose, for drinking, for bathing, for cleaning, for cooking, and for doing everything and sustaining themselves in every way that that they used water. Now, that radioactive ash became a part of their complete water system. 
We also didn't have refrigeration in 1945 in rural New Mexico, so nobody had a refrigerator. That meant that there were no grocery stores. There were mercantile stores. And what you bought in a mercantile store was flour, sugar, flour, sugar, coffee, rice, cereal, but you didn't buy meat, you didn't buy produce, you didn't buy uh, any dairy products. You actually produced all of those yourselves at home. So everybody had a milk cow or goat for the purpose of dairy. Everybody raised chickens, uh, pigs, sheep, uh, goats, and cows for the purpose of protein and meat. And then everybody had a garden and an orchard. And now, as the ash fell from the earth, it became, I mean, from the sky, it became part of the earth. And all of those things that, the, all those processes that people were doing were now negatively affected by the radiation. The, the bomb obviously produced this enormous radioactive fallout that they never expected to produce. And we weren't warned before or afterwards. And we weren't told that we should take any kind of special precautions. As a matter of fact, the government has never come back to take a look at what might have happened to the environment in New Mexico. And it's been a full 75 years uh, to date tomorrow. So our environment was completely and totally invaded by this process, and we were left uh, to, to deal with it on our own. There's a latency period, as most of you know, uh, that takes place after you've been exposed to radiation and you manifest disease. And it wasn't that long afterwards that we started to see cancers, and the word cancer started to be utilized in our community. So like, for example, in my own personal family, Two of my great-grandfathers developed cancer in 1945 at a time when no one had ever heard the word cancer, and they both died from that. Two of my grandmothers, my two grandmothers had cancer, although that's not what they died from. And my father died from cancer after having three different cancers that he didn't have risk factors for. As was stated by Robert, I'm a cancer survivor. I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer, and my sister is currently undergoing treatment for skin cancer. And my family is not unique. This story gets repeated over and over and over in New Mexico. The government in the United States has done a great job of controlling the messaging throughout these 75 years. They said then, and they continue to say now, that the area was remote and uninhabited, but in reality, there were tens of thousands of people living in a 50-mile radius to the Trinity test site, and we've actually identified branching families that lived as close as 12 miles to the test site. I don't have to tell you all, exposure to radiation is a factor of distance and time. And so the closer you live to the test site, the worse it is for you. The government, after they left New Mexico, uh, through the work of the physicians assigned to the test, decided that they could never do this here again because they had so overexposed people to radiation. And if they ever did it again anywhere, they had to find an area with a radius 150 miles uninhabited. If you draw a radius around Trinity, 150 miles, it encompasses Albuquerque to the north and El Paso to the south. And that means now we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people being exposed to radiation as a result of the Trinity test. We found out last year through a published document in a scientific journal that there was a huge spike in infant mortality in the months after Trinity. And so now I feel like I can safely say that we had casualties as a result of the Trinity test and they were our babies. 
And when the U.S. government's Manhattan, Manhattan District project was consulted about this by healthcare workers in New Mexico, the government decided to look the other way, deny, and to and to obviously not offer any assistance. And I think that that is absolutely unconscionable and unforgivable. Our babies were dying, and they looked the other way. We also know now through the work of a of a, a well-respected nuclear engineer and health physicist that. The exposure to the people in New Mexico from the Trinity test was likely 10 to 100 times greater than it was from any other nuclear incident that's taken place in the world. That includes uh, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and the Nevada test site. And I also want to recognize another fact that never is acknowledged in the history of nuclear testing in the United States, and that's that New Mexico was also downwind of the Nevada test site. That's very well documented. But the compensation that the government offers to downwinders in other parts of the United States ends at the New Mexico-Arizona border as if there is a lead curtain there that has somehow afforded us protection. We were exposed through the summer of 1962. And so we had this very large exposure from Trinity and then regular lower dose exposures from the Nevada test site. Exposure to radiation is cumulative and so hence the reason we have so many health the TVDC has been working for 15 years to bring attention to all of these things and for the last 10 years to see that bills are passed in Congress to extend compensation through the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act that was developed in 1990 to take care of us. And although we were the first people exposed to radiation any place in the world, we've never been acknowledged and we've never been offered assistance. That was Tina Cordova, co-founder of the Tolerosa Basin Downwinders Consortium in New Mexico in the US. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR and distributed nationally on the Community Radio Network. Next on the show, you'll hear from Karina Lester, Yankunjara Anangu, second-generation survivor of nuclear testing here in Australia. Firstly, I do want to acknowledge that I am here on the traditional lands of the Ghana people in South Australia and acknowledge other traditional owners. If anyone's linked in, I, I do want to acknowledge you guys um, wherever you may be sitting down and, and tuning into this event, this very, very unique event. I also want to say a huge thank you to Tina as well for giving me some great insight into that story because I knew very little of that Trinity story. Um, and so thank you, Tina, so much for giving um, your insight into that because that story is very common, as you mentioned, not only over there but here in Australia as well. And um, my, my story is talking about the impacts that British nuclear tests had on Aboriginal people in the state of South Australia. And of course, this presentation is in dedication of my late father, Yami Lester. So I use a lot of my Western Desert language, Yangundara language, um, and really want to share that, that there was a huge impact on Arnangura. And so my presentation or my talk today is just talking about Arnangu Ara, Ulbur Marunguru, um, and this is an Arnongo story or an Arnongo perspective from the black dust. Um, and and it's a, it really is important that we continue to share these stories because a lot of these stories and, and 
um, a lot of these stories are often sort of swept under the carpet and people um, forget about these stories and it was really important to be able to um, share these stories and get them out. Um, so huge thank you to Gem and ICANN crew in, in pulling this out and um, you know getting this event together as well. So of course this presentation is in, as I mentioned, in dedication of my late father, Yami Lester, who, as Robert mentioned, was such a, a great leader and an extraordinary man who spoke up very strongly about the British nuclear tests. And his story relates to the EMU tests um, that happened in outback South Australia. Um, and there's a quote here that I'm going to read for everybody from Dad, um, where he says, when people first got sick, my eyes got sore. I couldn't open my eyes. I got jury, diarrhea and a rash on my skin. I remember when this happened, my mother, my mother asked me to stay in the shade because I couldn't see. I was led around with a stick, like a, a bit like a digging stick. You hold at one end and the other person ahead of you holding the other end and you follow along. I didn't have the stick for long. I don't reckon it was even a week. Um, my left eye came good again, so I threw away the stick, but my right eye was permanently blind after that. But I could see with my left eye, but it gave me a lot of trouble. I could not see 100% with my left eye, and then within four years, I was completely blind. And so Dad was robbed of his sight and robbed of his vision um, to to be able to live this um, life that he really enjoyed living out on country, living on the traditional lands of his people in a community called Wallyadatta. Um, and this beautiful photo of Dad taken by Jesse Boylan, who's been a great um, photographer and activist and somebody in, in helping to get the stories out, um, had the opportunity to travel up to Wallyadatta, also known as Wallatina, um, in remote South Australia to capture these amazing photos um, of the location of exactly where um, the main community was. And, and Dad quotes that there at that particular location, we heard it here loud and clear and felt the ground shake. We seen the radiation fallout over our camp. It was moving very quietly and very deadly. And so a lot of the times when talking to a lot of our Arnong family and, and family who experienced this, um, people were um, moved and I guess feared by this movement of this um, smoke or fallout that came across over that main camp. And today, still to this day, we see the old remnants of that old camp and there was a lot of fear within the community and what happened to a lot of people there where people became very exposed um, to that radiation fallout, became very, very ill and also um, suffered from many things. And as my father mentions, you know, people suffered from skin rashes, um, diarrhoea, vomiting, um, and then later sore eyes and in some of our unnormal history, people talk about old generation passing away um, within hours of the test. So the test had taken place in the morning. Um, by that afternoon and early evening, people were really suffering and feeling the impacts of those 
um, tests at emu fields as well. Um, and as Dad mentions, you know, this black mist or this smoke um, moved very quietly and very deadly. So people were really um, overwhelmed by this because they were very familiar of dust storms. Um, dust storms are um, very loud and very noisy. They come with dust and sticks are flying around and, and, and a lot of noise. But this particular black mist um, travelled very quietly and, as Dad says, um, very deadly as well. So there was a lot of fear in that main camp and through our own, you know, oral, oral animal history, um, we heard stories of our old people um, digging the, in the sand dunes and burying children to get away from this black mist and this fallout as well. My grandmother and um, dad's mother as well, um, she recalls that it had a very strong smell and she got sick and started vomiting. Um, she was very much a big player in um, fallout and also in particular in the Royal Commission in giving evidence as the time um, passed because it was, you know, these tests, EMU Fields tests happened in, um, on the 15th of October in 1953 um, and the Royal Commission didn't happen until 84, 85, 1984-1985. So a lot of these old people who are no longer with us um, were very instrumental in the um, Royal Commission into the British nuclear tests. I just wanted to show everybody how South Australia is impacted by sort of all, almost all levels apart from, apart from actual, um, the, uh, I guess, the storing of a facility. Um, there is, you can see the two emu fields locations. Um, so there's one emu fields and then further south there is um, Maralinga and um, Maralinga is another location that is um, south from Emu Fields and um, in South Australia you can also see locations of where um, uranium is being mined as well. And so we feel pretty much on our South Australian Aboriginal lands um, the impacts of mining, um, testing first of course and then mining um, and many of us have been strongly advocating against the waste dump issue as well. So there is storage, storage apparently there at Woomera um, held on one of the prohibited areas. Um, and today South Australia is impacted on um, the, the waste issue in, in South Australia in our sort of wheat field area, um, agriculture country. Um, and that's a battle that um, many of the, my older generation, my grandmothers and grandfathers, or grandmothers in particular, in the Ere Wandi campaign in 1998 to about 2005, um, strongly campaigned against the um, Howard government's proposal for a nuclear waste dump. Um, that issue has now come across our table again in South Australia, where we are now starting to be um, vocal and um, activate, you know, our our connects to really send a strong message again. In 2015 and 2016, we also, um, our state of South Australia decided to run a Royal Commission into the entire fuel cycle. And um, that was another huge battle that a lot of First Nations people, Aboriginal people of South Australia um, needed to rally together 
to um, send a strong message to our government of South Australia, um, and also a message nationally as well. Um, but again, we are now faced with another radioactive waste dump proposed in um, in the beautiful Kimber area where um, agriculturists are growing wheat and, um, you know, lots of communities are impacted in that surrounding area as well. So many First Nations people are exposed um, from, you know, the tests, but also mining and also looking at being the solution to our waste issue as well. Um, this just shows you some of the photos of those sites, the mushroom clouds of Totem 1. And as I mentioned, in Totem 1 was on the 15th of October in 1953, um, a very remote, remote location. And um, during that time, I think it was um, very remote, but still very much our traditional lands. And many of his dad's people had moved and hunted around through country, um, used the traditional lands for, you know, practicing their law and their culture, um, and still very much living a nomadic life. And during the whole process in the 50s and 60s, there was one patrol officer that was responsible for covering the vast thousands of square kilometres in South Australia um, to, to inform people. And one of the big issues was communication, of course, to um, let Arnong know of um, this arrangement that was taking place and that a um, a test site had been identified for Totem 1 in the Emu Fields area um, for the 15th of October 1953. Um, Arnong were very much still living a traditional life and English was not their first or second language. Um, many of them were speakers of a language part of the Western Desert region called Yangunjara. Um, and there were Bidinjara people within that area as well and, and Mardu Yangunjara mob. Um, so they were still very much still living their traditional life. And one patrol officer could not communicate with um, traditional people out on communities. Um, at the time at Walyajara, many were living um, and working on a pastoral property. And Walyajara was an outstation to um, a, a station called Granite Downs. And so we had early settlers there, pastoralists, um, and the patrol officer coming in and, and talking to the um, pastoralists, but very little communication to Arnamadrudo. So they were very unaware that there was going to be a number of tests um, conducted not far south of them. And Walyadjata would be about, you know, 100 kilometres as the crow flies um, north of the test site at Emu Fields. Um, and that explains why Dad and his people had felt the um, the fallout, the ground shaking and the black mist rolling, as Dad recalls. Um, it was a time, I, and then another quote again from Dad is saying, I, I said I was at home with the flu at that time and I was listening to the ABC program AM on the radio, which he did very often. Um, it was his way of hearing and communicating and hearing about what's happening around the world. They were interviewing this fellow by the name of Sir Ernest Titterton and he quotes, Sir Ernest says, oh, the black people were well looked after. And in dad's memory, that was not the case. People suffered and suffered immediately um, after those um, tests that took place at Emu Fields. Because Emu Fields was such a very um, remote location, um, those test sites did move down to another location called Maralinga as well. 
And these were uh, Operation Totems, and they were a pair of British atmospheric nuclear tests, which took place at Emu Fields on, as I mentioned, on the 15th of October. And at the time of two totem nuclear tests at Emu Fields in South Australia, the area was used as the 1983 to 1985 Royal Commission reported. It was used for hunting and gathering for temporary settlements, for caretakership and spiritual renewal as many of my people were still active, living a very nomadic life. Um, the operations, of course, that's just totem one on the 15th, 9.1 kilotons, and then totem two on the 27th of October, 53, 7.1 kilotons as well. It was later found that there was the cloud from the first detonation did not disperse as expected and traveled in a northeast over the Australian continent, which covered Wallatina community where many of, of Dad's people were living and working and um, living a traditional life and felt the full brunt of the whole of that um, fallout in EMU tests, Totem 1 and Totem 2, and was considered too remote for future use. And so the, the search for a more convenient location led to the survey of Maralinga, where a further series of atom tests were conducted in 56 and, and onwards. And many tests were conducted in that area there. Just two points coming out of the Royal Commission I just wanted to highlight was that the Australian Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies, at the time approved the British nuclear test without first receiving independent Australian scientific advice on the hazards to humans and the environment. And one other point was that Australia's key representative to oversee the atomic tests on behalf of, of Australia, Sir Ernest Titterton, the gentleman that Dad heard on ABC radio, was in fact an expat British person who withheld key information from the Australian government. There are many other findings from the Royal Commission, and I, I won't go into all of them, but I'm happy to share through GEM the presentation as well. But as I mentioned, many of our women and our leaders and my grandparents, my grandmothers and aunties um, had set a legacy before me, and I've taken on parts of the story of re really keeping those stories alive and ongoing. That was Karina Lester, a Yankunjara Anangu second generation survivor of nuclear testing in Australia. You're listening to The Radioactive Show, produced this week by me, AC, and brought to you with the support of the ACE Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth. Thanks to the speakers, Karina Lester and Tina Cordova, and also to Jim from ICANN, who organised the Beyond Trinity online panel discussion, where these speakers were recorded. A third speaker on the panel, Hiroshima survivor Coco Kondo, will feature in my next rad show in a couple of weeks. I'll add a link to the video of that panel discussion on the 3CR website, where you can also find podcasts of our show, www.3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. That's it for today. This show is produced at my home in Nam, Melbourne, and distributed across these stolen lands known as Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can get in touch with The Rad Show by looking us up on Facebook or by calling the station on 03 9419 8377 and leaving a message. 
Thanks for listening, and here's to a nuclear-free future. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.